Good morning, everybody. A community garden part two, a joyous people. This morning, we're going to be picking up where Greg left off last week. He led us through looking at love in the Ten Commandments. This morning, we're going to be talking about joy. So I think it's only fair if I get at least ten points on joy. So buckle up, we're in for a joy ride. All cheesy jokes aside, there's only four points this morning. But what are we talking about here? We're talking about life in the church. How do we treat, how do we interact with, and how do we relate to one another within the local church body? You know, often we think about the fruit of the Spirit from an individual perspective. What is the fruit in my life? But as Kyle reminded us a few weeks ago in the book of Galatians, that the fruit of the Spirit is surrounded by passages talking about corporate life in a church body. And so what we're doing last week, this week, and next week is looking at a few of these fruit of the Spirit and how they play out in a church life setting. And this morning, we're looking at joy. Can anybody use some joy this morning? Is anybody tired or frustrated or depressed because of the rain? Any frustrated just feeling burnt out. I could use some joy. But I say that, and I'm like, well, what, what do I actually mean by that? What is joy? Well, let's lay some groundwork for what is joy and what is not joy, and so we can kind of build on that as we go. First is, what would culture say joy is? What does the world say joy is? You might think of this great feeling of pleasure, of happiness. Um, maybe think of a Pixar character. Um, and I think it's always good to just Google whatever you're talking about and see what some of the first responses are. Sometimes you're very surprised. Um, one of the first things that popped up was an example sentence of joy from, I think it was Webster's Dictionary. And the example sentence was, I felt shame that I had ever joyed at his discomfort or pain. How is that what the world thinks joy is about? That's not a good example of joy. That's a horrible example sentence. But then I came across a definition, and this is going to be our working definition for what joy is from a worldly perspective. The meaning of joy is the emotion evoked by the well-being, success, or good, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. So what is joy not? Well, you may think that the definition of joylessness is chores or being lonely, something that's really boring or nothing to do, like a long commute or living in a small town or toilsome work and the feeling of futility at your job. I saw a picture. It was like the welcome sign to a small town. It said, Welcome to Small Town USA. There is no joy, but we have a Starbucks. There is nothing to do here. It's boring. There is no joy, but at least we can get coffee, which for some of you, that may be the definition of joy. But when we talk about joy, one of the first things that comes to mind is happiness. And I think a lot of Christian perspectives of joy versus happiness try to make this distinction where joy is just something that endures, whereas happiness is an in-the-moment feeling but I think we take that to the extreme sometimes, where joy only exists in the hard times, where there is no happiness, 
and joy can be presented as completely emotionless. But this distinction, for the most part, is not really found in Scripture. Joy is definitely more than just a feeling, but is by no means absent of it. And in fact, if anything, if you look through the Bible, joy is most often used in place of what we would think of as happy. Whereas happy is more often used in what we would think of as blessed. So, joy, right? From a Christian perspective, joy is all about singing, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart! Because I'm so happy! Yay! I can have a big smile no matter what is happening because I've got joy. Well, um, I think that can be kind of off-putting. Um, one might even say that that's kind of fake. You know, when the world around us and the community within us is hurting, and our response is, well, you've got to put on this big fake smile and pretend everything's okay, that can be very off-putting. I don't know that I would want to be a part of a community that denies hurt and that denies the pain of this world and just puts on a fake smile. And certainly from an outside perspective, there's nothing appealing about that. They wouldn't look at a big fake smile and say, man, that's a joyous people. They would look and say, man, that's a crazy people. You know, you may have seen the meme. Um, there's a cartoon dog sitting at a table drinking his coffee. The house around him is burning down to the ground. And the caption just says, it's fine. Everything is fine. Sometimes Christians can come off that way. So I don't think that fake joy is what true biblical joy is. But what is it? Well, this morning, in order to avoid just doing a word study on joy, we're going to look and try to define this by the example of a joyous community as found in Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. One that he writes to, telling them to rejoice always. So, to give a little bit of an idea of what we're doing, we're going to look at a few passages from the letter of 1 Thessalonians to, pick, to develop a picture of this dynamic of their community and look at the evidence of their joy and what was the fertilizer that led to the development of this fruit of joy. To give you a little bit of context, because we haven't really been in 1 Thessalonians before or recently, um, Paul's out on his second missionary journey. He's got Silas with him, and they're joined by a young Timothy. They were going to head to Asia. Spirit says, no, don't go there. Paul has a vision calling him to Macedonia. They land first in Philippi. Things go great, and then, you know, prison and riots and beating with rods. Um, and then they leave Philippi and find their way to Thessalonica. And there, as was Paul's custom, he entered the city, reasoned in the synagogue, and there were a few Jews that believed. But in addition to that, there was a multitude of Greeks who believed and many leading women. And then the Jews, well, they got jealous, as was their custom, and started a mob. Now, the spirit and the tradition of this region of Macedonia, they were very religious, had multiple pagan religions, but one of the things that was very present and that defined the culture and essence of these cities was the deification of the Roman emperor. So for Paul and Silas to come in and start preaching a new Lord was treason. So people get upset, and as you would imagine, 
It's not a safe place for them to be. So this new church, newly created church, send Paul and Silas on their way. They said, we love you, but for your safety, for our safety, we need you to leave. And so they go on to Berea. But then Paul, sometime after, having only been in Thessalonica for a short time, but still having developed very close, intimate relationships, he's worried about them. He's worried that the new church may struggle in the midst of persecution as their brothers and sisters in their community accuse them of treason and start to beat them with rods or drag them out and send them into prison. And he's worried about these new Gentile believers in this very spiritual, religious, pagan context. Um, he's worried that they may succumb to false teachings. So he sends Timothy to get a report on how they're doing. And Paul is extremely encouraged and just overjoyed about this report that he gets back. And so he quickly sends a letter of encouragement, exhorting them, and sends that back to them. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. So to kind of introduce the book, I'm going to read just the whole first chapter of 1 Thessalonians because it's short. Um, and then we'll go through um, looking at joy within this community. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need say nothing, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. So, when we look at this community in Thessalonica, we've got four points that describe the community and describe their joy. The first one's pretty simple. They were grounded in the word. It's very straightforward. In verse 6 of chapter 1, they received the word. And in chapter 2, verse 13, it says, And we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The word, the gospel message, the Old Testament, the law, all of these things were given to us to teach us how to love, as Greg talked about last week. So if by fulfilling the law, we are loving God, and God is love, we are experiencing his presence and his working as we obey his commands. And this leads to joy. We saw last week in the Ten Commandments that the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, comes with a little add-on. 
that it may go well with you. It's not the only time you see this. You see this actually several times related to the law throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is giving the law to Israel. You skip down to chapter 40 and he says, keep his, command, or keep his decrees and commandments which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you. You may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. The law was given for our good, that it may go well with you. But this isn't just practical good. See, this word that's used here has a sense of joy, saying this is for your good and for your joy, the law. Okay, that's cool. That's in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? What does the law have to do with that? Well, Jesus says the same thing. In John chapter 15, verses 10 through 13, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be with you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You see that God's commands, this gospel message that we hear, they show perfect love, and they do that so that our joy may be complete. So what else? What about this joy? What's going on in this community? They're grounded in the word, and their joy, second point, is given and guided by God. You see in this community that they rejoice in God, who is the source of and the guide for their joy. In verse 6 in chapter 1 that we read earlier, they received the word in the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is a joy that emanates from God. It is not self-instigated. It is not self-initiated. This is the work of the Spirit of God. To paraphrase Jonathan Edwards, he says that true religious affections are given by grace from God as we discover and are illuminated as to the supernatural divinity of God through the Holy Spirit. We are given a new nature by our Creator, and as we know and experience Him, those discoveries have a divine effect that we are being transformed. And it is out of this new nature that the fruit of the Spirit are born. Now, Edwards is writing primarily about the affection towards God. But we see throughout the gospel that this new creation brings forth change and renewal, not just in our relationship with God, but in how we relate to one another, particularly within God's people, the church. Now, within this idea of being guided by God, joy that's being guided by God, there's something else present here. There's two more little caveats in here that may take a little bit of work. You don't see them first reading through, but if you've ever been over in the other building or if you've been around Crosspoint for a while, their joy is being guided by God because this is a community that is led and leadable. See, God established his church with leadership. You see this in Paul, who as a leader is joyful in the faithfulness of the church. Chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, it says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. 
Paul is overjoyed at this great report that he got from Timothy. And you see that in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, where he says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. Paul is very joyful as their leader. But Paul's not just talking about himself as their leader. He's also commending them to the leaders in their local church body because Paul is not there. He's not their local leader. In chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, in today's context full of high-profile stories about the failures and sins of pastors and church leaders, you may find this concept unpleasant or outdated. And definitely, we wouldn't think of being subordinate to church leadership as something associated with joy. Many in here have experienced real hurt from church leadership, both here and elsewhere. And if you haven't, at some point in your life, you probably will. And I would say overall in culture that this has led to a spirit of suspicion of church leadership. Matt Schmucker in his um, book, Elders in the Life of the Church, he writes that it is a serious spiritual deficiency in a church to have leaders who are untrustworthy or members who are incapable of trusting. David Mathis, in his new book, Workers for Your Joy, he writes of church leadership. He says, are they flawed? Yes. Sinful? Absolutely. Have some pastors made terrible mistakes and fleeced to their flocks and injured the very ones they were commissioned to protect? Sadly, yes. Too many have. But this is not because they were fulfilling the vision of true Christian leadership, but it's because they were falling short of it. And in fact, their failures show us, by contrast, what real leadership in the church should be. But why do we have Christian leaders? Why do we have leaders in the church if they're just so prone to failure and hurt and letting us down? And why in the world am I talking about this this morning in relationship to joy? Well, I think first, we need to have the right view of Christian leadership. We need to first view that church leadership is a gift from God and that it is for our joy. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. God gave them to us. It is a gift, as Ephesians 4 tells us. Hebrews 13, 17 commends us to obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. See, this joy is not just for them. They don't get to just sit back and be like, man, I am so joyful that these church members are so good at obeying everything I say. That's not how that works. But their joy is associated with our joy. It is of advantage to us. This type of church leadership is leading, not lording. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you 
for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For our joy, because they are contributing to our progress in the faith. As Paul says in Philippians 1.25, he says, I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. This is God's design for our growth and for our joy within the local church. Another point of how we see the Thessalonian church of being guided by God is that they are tied to tradition. They realize that they are not alone, that they are part of something bigger than their immediate context. Now, this is definitely a little bit more subtle. We saw earlier their connection as being imitators of Paul, Paul and Silas, but we also see that they are also taking their lead and being imitators of the churches in Judea. Chapter 2, verse 24 says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are, not alone, that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. This idea of being connected with um, these other established churches provides encouragement to this new church. Let's them know that they are not alone in their suffering, that they are not alone in the things that they are working through as a new church, but they are part of something much larger. And in this case, Paul is talking about experiencing similar suffering. That definitely doesn't sound like joy. But think about it. In their context, how encouraging and how joyful would you be to know that these new, for these new believers to know that they are in this long lineage of people who have suffered for Christ and that he has remained faithful to his people. You see, this whole church thing isn't just about Crosspoint. It's not just about Baptists or Evangelicals or Protestants or Catholics or Orthodox, but it's about God's people. He has called to himself for his glory from every nation, every tribe and tongue, and it spans from creation to eternity. This is part of why we have traditions, why we have liturgies and creeds, the church calendar, all of these things. Not only are we building on the wisdom and the foundation of prior generations, but we are connecting with our history as God's people. And we can be encouraged in that, seeing God's faithfulness throughout all of these generations. So the tradition that this particular church was tied to in Thessalonica was a tradition of suffering. And that brings us to our third point, that their joy is galvanized in affliction. They received the word in much affliction. They've been cut off from Paul and Silas, the people who brought them this good news. And they were in real, serious danger from their community context. There's this theme among God's people of receiving the word in much affliction. You see that the Mosaic law is given to these people who have come out of slavery and are wandering around in the desert. The prophets, when they delivered the word, they were often discredited or mistreated, and their messages were of God's coming judgment. Or their messages were being received by somebody who had already experienced that judgment by those who were in exile. And we definitely can't overlook the capstone of the gospel, the affliction that Christ endured on our behalf. 
We could not have received the good news without the affliction of the cross. And even Jesus, in the midst of his affliction, he was looking to joy. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And our context is no different. We're not exempt from affliction, but nor are we exempt from joy in the midst of affliction. We have no better person to look to in our affliction than Christ, who experienced the affliction of the cross, looking to joy on our behalf. You see this in the story of David in Psalm 30, writing in response to much of the affliction that he's experienced in his life as he is now seeing God's favor. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for, I have, for you have drawn me up you, and not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you brought me up. You brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to his Sing praises to the Lord, O his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You can feel the hardship that David has felt. We know his story. It was not easy by any means. He experienced great affliction. See, the path to true joy recognizes, similar to David, the darkness. It feels the hurt and the sting. Like David, there is crying and lamentation. David even talking about how he felt as if he were at the point of death. And true joy comes in the morning after having been through the darkness of the night. On the path to true joy, we must look to God, like David did, as being sovereign even over the darkness, and recognize his power over the enemies. Look to him as one who heals, who restores, and brings us back from death. And like David, we must trust in his promise that his favor endures forever. This is how we can, in the midst of darkness, sing praises, because we know that his name will be glorified and that he will be with his people. And that's what Paul does in this letter to the Thessalonians. He encourages them at the end of the letter, pointing them to Christ and reminding them of these things, that Christ is coming back. You see in chapter 4, verses 18, he says, We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Chapter 5, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, reminding them of salvation. He's saying, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Encouragement and hope in the Lord is how we find joy when we suffer. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's a great illustration. We've heard that term before, but most of us don't know where it comes from. In Nehemiah chapter 8, you see the people returning from the affliction of the exile, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, and Ezra the priest is proclaiming 
the law to them, grounding them in the word. And the people are starting to understand that they have so transgressed God's law. But Nehemiah comes up and assures them. He says, no, this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. He's saying, be strengthened, because the Lord is here. His favor has returned to his people. We must know that sorrow will not last forever because we have everlasting joy knowing that Jesus will return. And how do we know this? Well, Jesus tells us. John chapter 16, verse 20 and 22 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she will no longer remember the anguish for the joy that a human being has been brought into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. Our last point. We're grounded in the word. We have a joy that is given and guided by God and galvanized in affliction. And as a people, a joyful people, we are growing in faithfulness. This idea that joy is enhanced when fruitful faithfulness thrives. <clears throat> see, not only did this church in Thessalonica stand firm, but we see that they are sharing, they are exemplifying the word to surrounding communities Chapter 1, verse 6, we read in reference several times already, but it says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that, you, so that we need say nothing. Right? We saw Paul's joy that they have not only stood firm, but now we see his joy that they are bearing fruit. He planted a seed, it grew into fruit, and now it is out bearing more fruit. Paul goes on to describe that not only are they sharing the gospel message well, but they are loving well. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask, you, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us, how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. It says you are walking faithfully. Good job. Keep doing it more and more. On down in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that, indeed, is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. You're loving well. Keep doing it. Chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. You're doing all of these things, and keep doing them. And then Paul finishes his letter by exhorting him to be at peace with one another and not to tend towards idleness, but to keep walking in faithfulness in hope of Christ's return. So in all of this, 
we still have the question out there, what is true biblical joy? We've seen an example in a community. We've seen their characteristics. We've seen their joy. And I would hope in all of that you're starting to see that there is something different about true biblical joy. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, the Jews in Thessalonica, talking about the message that Paul and Silas had proclaimed, say that the apostles have turned the world upside down with their teaching. So our starting definition of worldly joy was basically just self-gratification. That's not what we're talking about. That is not joy within the Bible. For the sake of brevity, you'll have to trust me on this, but if you look through the Old Testament, you see over and over again that joy is present when they are talking about the presence of God. You see it at the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle, the temple. You see joy being described as being removed when God removes his favor, and that joy returns when God looks upon his people with favor. You see joy when the word is proclaimed, and joy at the prospect of the coming salvation. Biblical joy emanates from encountering the one true God through his presence and working. There is no equivalent in the secular world. This is how we differentiate between biblical joy and what the world would say the joy is. And in the New Testament, the same thing is true. The joy is associated with the presence of God. You see it all over the nativity story when Jesus comes. Jesus puts it in a lot of his parables when he's talking about um, the sowing of the seeds, um, talking about the treasure in the field. You see this when the disciples are out proclaiming the gospel message. You see joy at the empty tomb. You see joy at the ascension. You see joy at Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. But then... As you go on and get into the, the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, you see something different. You see joy being described as a result of the works of the early church. You see joy, as we've seen here from Paul, joy about reports of how the churches are doing, or longing for the joy of being together. But this is not some new kind of joy. This is the same joy that is a response to encountering the one true God, and in this case, encountering him through his people, the church. We experience joy when we experience God and his presence and his working. And where does the Bible tell us that we experience both his presence and his working together? The church. Matthew 18 says that for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. In Matthew 28, the church is commissioned to carry on the work of God, of making disciples, of teaching, and baptizing. This idea of corporate joy is very different from what the world's joy is that seeks self-gratification. Instead, this joy seeks the joy of the entire people as we experience God together. And as we experience God, we want more and more Paul exhorts the Thessalonians over and over again, more and more. We ought to be wanting God more and more. And this also implies that there is an aspect of the people of God who ought to be working and continuing on in faithfulness. And this includes, like Greg talked about, loving each other well. 
So here's our definition of joy. All this just to get to that. Biblical joy is not based on gratification of temporal or corporeal desires. Rather, true joy is a perpetual gladness, divine in its origin, flowing forth from experiencing God and his work. True joy flourishes in affliction by looking to Christ, whereas false joy falters. And it flourishes among his people, the church, where our triune social God dwells. True joy finds complete satisfaction in God and needs nothing more. And it exhorts, or sorry, needs nothing more, but at the same time, it is insatiable in its desire to experience God more and more. And it exhorts the believer to grow and walk in fruitful faithfulness. So we made it to the conclusion, so bear with me. Here we are. We've got our definition of joy, but some of you are probably sitting there thinking, all right, Jason, we don't live in Thessalonica. Their joy, my joy, I'm not feeling it. Joy may be feeling elusive to you right now. So we've got a series of questions to ask yourself. What kind of joy are you seeking? Are you seeking an emotion that's based off your well-being, success, good fortune, and the fulfilling of your desires? Or are you seeking a joy that emanates from and is established by God and that is found in his presence and particularly among his people? Do you see these people as a joy because of God's presence and working in their life? Or do you see them for the potential joy that they can offer you as a utility? Do you view this church body as a family, as immersive relationships, or as acquaintances and annoyances and utilities? Maybe some of you are sitting there this morning thinking like, okay, I've got this. If joy is in the church, all I have to do is show up and enjoy it. That sounds nice. Just a joy consumer. And, you know, show up, get the initial hype of, hey, I'm in a new church, this is this is good. And then things get hard, and somebody asks you to do something, and it takes some work. It's like, well, I'll just hop onto the next church and enjoy. That is not true joy. Consuming joy without contributing is not joy. As a creation of God, you are created to be in community, not just consuming the easy benefits of it, but contributing to it. You benefit from each other from others' unique gifts and from the sanctification that comes as iron sharpens iron, as we bump up against each other. And two, your church needs you. You are uniquely gifted for the edification, the building up of this church body. The parable about the good and faithful servants who took what God had given them and put it to work, at the end of that, you see that because they have been faithful, they are granted entrance into the joy of their Lord. Maybe this morning you're sitting there thinking that joy looks a lot more like a tomato. Doesn't look like a fruit. Doesn't taste sweet like a fruit. Surely, what I'm feeling right now can't be a fruit. Maybe this is because you're in the midst of or have just come out of some sort of affliction. 
We've had a lot of affliction in the past year, or past several years, between lots of transition at Crosspoint, lots of personal hurt in all of our lives. We had a global pandemic. The entire world is hurting. It can be hard to find joy in that or for joy to taste sweet. Maybe you look around this room and you see somebody and you're like, mm, they're a tomato. There is no joy when I look at them, only resentment. But let me encourage you that if your faith is feeling joyless and toilsome and futile, boring, lonely, maybe you're missing the fruitful garden that God has prepared for you and his people, the church. In particular, if you look around in these people at Crosspoint Fellowship, if you are struggling in finding joy, consider your involvement and your priority with the ongoings of the church. As Elijah talked about earlier with the supper, Paul calls us to examine ourselves discerning the body. If you leave here on Sunday afternoon and your church family becomes out of sight, out of mind, you are missing out on God's gift to his people within the church. Now, we're not asking everybody to sign up to join a cult and move to a gated compound and wear white robes, but we are talking about true life together in the midst of God's people. Are you prioritizing the church events, what the church is doing? To paraphrase from Mark Dever, he's talking about how church members ought to deliberately give themselves in love to each other and have responsibilities to each other. That sounds great, but that's kind of hard. You know, so what Mark does is he points you to, hey, look what your church staff is already doing. What do they already have planned? Picking back up with him, uh, he says that the staff work hard to provide opportunities to facilitate growth and relationships with the goal that everyone in the congregation would have multiple natural relationships with others in the congregation in which they are being built up as Christians. Please understand that your welfare and, the, and joy are the business of the church as we experience these things together as the people of God at Crosspoint Fellowship. So let me leave you just with some questions. Are you grounded in the word? Not just personal quiet time, but are you partaking in the proclaiming of the word corporately on Sunday morning with God's people? Is God present in your conversations with the people of God? Are you submitting to God-given, godly leadership? Are you connecting to and serving the people of God in this church body? Are you leaning into your church family when life is tough, or are you withdrawing? Are you open to the whole church, or only those with whom joy is easy? And finally, are you asking God to reveal himself in his workings to you more and more. Maybe this morning you're sitting there and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And that may be because you're not experiencing this kind of joy because you have not experienced God. And if that's the case, I invite you to talk to one of our elders, go over to the welcome booth afterwards. We want to get you in contact with somebody to talk about that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you have provided a unique joy 
that comes only from you. God, we thank you that you have given us a community of your people in which to experience this joy. God, we thank you that you have given us godly leaders that are working for our joy, and we ask that you would help us follow them well for their joy. God, we thank you that you sustain us in our afflictions and that you are faithful forever. Lord, we ask that you would reveal your presence and working to us in our life as Crosspoint Fellowship, in our community in Hunt County and Greenville, in our nation and in the world, and that you would reveal that more and more. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.